We who know you, Father, through your Son, long not just to know things about you. We long to know you. It isn't satisfying for us just to be faces in a crowd. We want to know you on a personal basis. Show us how you do that with us, what your terms are for a personal relationship, how you define a personal relationship with you. Draw us deeper into an affectionate walk with you and grant that all of us yearn and desire for that and pursue it according to your directives and your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you see the introduction is titled, Sufficiency and You. We'd best begin by defining what the sufficiency of Scripture is. If you've been here any length of time, you know that, if you've been here any length of time, you know that we affirm robustly the sufficiency of Scripture, the doctrine that the Bible is the sufficient Word of God. But what does that exactly mean? Uh, Two wonderful definitions I offer to you. One is by the theologian John Frame. Uh, When he's good, he's very, very good. And his definition of scriptural sufficiency is very, very good. He says, it is the doctrine that Scripture contains all the words of God that we need for any area of life. That's very good. Scripture contains all the words of God that we need for any area of life. Scripture contains all the words of God that we need for any area of life. Charles Spurgeon gave a more functional, experiential definition, but no less good. Here's his. He says, all the truth that sanctifies men is in God's word. That's very good. All the truth that sanctifies men is in God's word. Okay. But we just sang a song, Lord, speak to me. What did you mean when you sang that? What were you thinking God would do in response, or what were you hoping God would do in response to that prayer? See, there are a great many Christians who would listen to those definitions that I just gave, and they'd say, yes, I agree with that. And then they look to God to speak to them directly, personally, subjectively, apart from Scripture. Oh, they'd say it has to agree with Scripture, but it's not Scripture. To them, in some sense, it is God speaking to them, but He's not speaking to them through Scripture alone. So, let me say just as plainly as I can, you either believe in that definition of the sufficiency of Scripture we just gave, or you look for God to speak to you in a personal, subjective basis. You can't believe both. To the degree that we look for a word from God that is personal to us apart from Scripture, to that degree we don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. We won't seek to it alone to hear God speak. We won't rely on it alone to hear God speak. This is one of the most crucial issues facing the church. Now, let me join this. On the personal basis, uh, sufficiency and me. You know I've often spoke about the charismatic movement. Well, this is the heart of charismaticism and mysticism. Looking for an experience of God beyond his word. Oh, they'd say, not in contradiction to the word, but it's all important that I have that revelation to me personally apart from the word. And then when we speak to him, when when they hear someone like me saying what I just said to you, 
and what I've said many times, to them, they don't hear it as being called to something that is wonderful. They hear it as being called away from something that is wonderful. That's very important for us to understand. To them, this idea that God speaks directly to them, personally and subjectively, is a warm, personal, intimate thing that's very, very meaningful to them. And so when we call them to affirm robustly and consistently and to live on the basis of the sufficiency of Scripture alone, to them, they think we're calling them away from something warm and personal to something distant and formal, lifeless and bloodless. They think we're calling them from a life where they might at any moment get a little personal text message from God in their hearts that, well, it's muzzy and it's hard to discern exactly what he's saying, but still the thought is there. They're, asked, they're being asked to trade that for settling for, in effect, a form letter that begins to whom it may concern. And that's all they get of a personal relationship with God. So, dwell on the verse at the top of your outline. What does that verse say, Psalm 119, 105? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Ah, we say, yes, that's right. The word is a lamp. The word is a light. Yes, that's very true. We believe that. Is that all that verse says, though? What does that verse say? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So as we will see, it's the insistence of Scripture that though it is the same Scripture for all of God's people, it is God's word to each of his people. That what is a word and a, a light and a lamp to all God's people is a lamp and a light to me. So my question and the, the burden of this message is, how does that happen? How does the word of God to all his children become the word of God to each of his children? How does the word out there become the word in here? Because I'd just like to add something else. We, we sing that verse and, and believe that verse, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And we think, yes, the way I don't sin is the word tells me don't do this and do do this. Well, that's true. That's true. We need that. But part of the way the word in our heart keeps us from sinning is that word so fills us with God, fills us with love for God, with passion for God, that sin doesn't have its appeal. And if somebody says, well, I don't know anything about that, well, we've talked a good deal about it, but we're going to talk about it again and try to distill and make it as, as simple as all of us can see and grasp how it is that God makes his word personal to each of us. So, how does it become sweet and desirable to the individual believer and sufficient for the individual believer? We've got to start off, Roman numeral one, by understanding the foundational truth. We've got to start there. Understanding the foundational truth, because we're talking about the general area, or the, the subject of how God relates. So, to understand the foundational truth, let's begin by learning how God relates generally to His creation. Number one, how does He relate generally to His creation? Where do you think I'm going to take you? We have met before. That's correct. Genesis chapter 1. Go there with me. So we read, perhaps you've heard this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So this is an act of God. 
But what do we see specifically is the first act of God over his brand new, as yet unorganized, unfinished creation. Verse 3, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So God spoke words. Now this is the infinite personal God who is spirit. He has no parts or bones or things to him. How does spirit relate to matter? How does spirit relate to things? The point of contact is what? His word. He says the words, Yehi or, let light be, Yehi or, and light was. He doesn't say, let there be light, and there's a cosmos of hamburgers. What he says is exactly what happens. He says what he means in words, and what he says in words is what happens. So this is God relating to his creation. We see that narrated in the history of Genesis. See it celebrated in poetry in the Psalms, Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9. That same thing we just read in narrative form is celebrated in poetic form. Psalm 33, verse 6. We read in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In Psalm 33, 6, we read, By the word of Yahweh the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. We saw the Spirit of God brooding in verse 2 of Genesis 1. So it's by the word of the Lord again. It's by his word. His word is the point of contact between God and the material universe, his creation in general. And verse 9 says, For he spoke and it was, he commanded, and it stood. Everything we live in now, every law that we count on for our existence exists because of the word and the command of God. So in narration and celebration, I'm just going to say, not spend a lot of time, we also see it in interpretation, number three. Now what I mean by that is somebody could be hearing what I say and say, well, God doesn't just speak, he does things. He does signs and wonders, he does miracles. Yes, he does. But you'll notice uh, very often that the way this proceeds is God says what he's going to do and what it means, He does it, and then he says what he did. Let me give you an example, a very famous one. You know it well. Exodus 4. Exodus 4.21, he says to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see to it that all the miraculous wonders which I have put in your hand, that you do them before Pharaoh. But as for me, I will harden his heart with strength so that he will not let my people go. Now, we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but first we read that God God said he would harden his heart. So that's the ultimate cause. And he says this is going to happen. And he says Moses is to do all these miracles. That's before it has even started. And then as it is in process, he says in 11, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And then he brings the plague of the, of the death of the firstborn. And they're let go, just like he said. And then afterwards in 1430, we read that thus Yahweh saved Israel from the, uh, that day. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And of course, there are many, many scriptures that look back at the events of the Exodus. And this is characteristic. God speaks about what he'll do. He'd, without God's word, what, what would the fleas mean? What would the, the, the frogs mean? What would the hail mean? The darkness, firstborn dying. What would the meaning of any of that be? I challenge you to tell me. You have no idea. We'd have no idea. I'd have no idea. But God's word tells us what they mean. God's word is his point of contact 
with His creation. It's His means of interaction. Secondly, it is also how God relates to His people. We've seen how He relates to His creation in general. Now how He relates to His people in general. Well, turn back to Genesis 1 if you're not already there. And as you're turning there, I just ask you to, to, I just ask you to reflect. What is Adam's first experience of God? Suppose you hadn't read Genesis. What might you think? That Adam's first experience is of, of brilliant colors? <coughs> that his first experience is as, a, as of a feeling of immensity? Or a, a fragrance? Or a, a sound, tones? Or signs floating through the air? But in fact, what is, as far as the record tells us, and remember, the record tells us everything we need to know, What's Adam's first experience of God? Words. Speaking. Genesis 1.28. God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 29. I've given you every plant yielding seed and so forth. And how does he deal with him in chapter 2? He speaks to him. How does he deal him in chapter 3 after they've fallen into sin? He speaks to them. So God's Word is the point of contact with His people. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. This is a turning point in the Bible. You could say that the rest of the... I could say that the rest of the Bible kind of springs out of Genesis 3.15, but Genesis 12 furthers us greatly and is at the root of a lot. When Yahweh takes Abram, who He's elected, and makes him His own, how does He do that? Genesis 12.1, And Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land and from your kin, and so forth. He speaks to him and makes promises to him, including the promise of Christ. Even more pointedly, look at chapter 15. Words you know are quoted several times in the New Testament. 15.6, Then he believed in Yahweh, Abram did. Then Abram believed in Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Well, that's wonderful. But if we read that un taught by Scripture. We could say that Abram worked up in himself a faith in God, and through this general faith in God, God counted him righteous. But no, that is not what happened. That would be a grave mistake to think that that happened. Just go back one verse. Yahweh brought him outside and said, now look to the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them, and he stops to let him try. And after he's run out of numbers, presumably, God says, so shall your seed be. Then he believed in Yahweh. Well, to be specifically, what did he believe? The word of Yahweh. Yahweh's word was the means by which Yahweh counted Abram righteous. When he heard God's word and he believed God's word, that's how God connected with him and said amen to God's promise. And he was counted righteous. Let's think forward to Exodus 20. God brings Israel out of Egypt across the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. And what does he do with them? You say, well, there's sound and clouds and thunder and scariness. All this is true. But what else is there? It's the words of God. The Ten Commandments. You know what the Ten Commandments are called literally in Hebrew several times in Exodus and Deuteronomy? The Ten Words. The Ten Devarim. The Ten Words. So this is how God, God's point of impact with His creation in general is His Word. God's point of impact of contact with human beings is His Word. 
So now let's bring it, bring it down to a more individual level. Letter B. Personally, how does God relate? Personally, that is individually, that is you and me if we have a relationship with God, or if we don't and want to have a relationship with God, how would that happen? Turn to Romans chapter 10, and we'll look at verses 13 through 17, and it will begin telling us very powerfully how God begins, how God closes, how God makes happen a relationship to us lost sinners. So in Romans 10.13, Paul wonderfully says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, that's wonderful, and he's quoting the Old Testament when he says that. But he doesn't leave it there. Paul asks four questions. And so much lies behind these four questions and how he answers them. The first question is, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? Well, so that means that, we, that evangelism doesn't just consist in our going out and getting people to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Say those words. Good. You're in. You're going to heaven. You said those words. But no, it's not just saying the words. Paul says, how will they believe in him whom they've not heard? Ah, so this is calling on the Lord in faith. Okay, faith is necessary. But what specifically? I tell you, friend, the difference between heaven and hell lies in what you understand faith to mean. Being a person of faith means nothing. Everybody's a person of faith. Every person in hell will be a person of faith. So we've got to know exactly what God means by it. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? So first you've got to know what God's calling you to believe. But how do you know that? Second question, how will they believe in him whom they've not heard? Well, you tell me to call in the name of Jesus, you better tell me who Jesus is. You better communicate who Jesus is to me. Third question, how will they hear without a preacher? Uh-huh. So somebody's got to bring that word to that person or there will be no saving faith. Fourth, how will they preach unless they're sent? And then he quotes another scripture. Comes to his conclusion in verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the what? The word of Christ. The word of Christ. So if you're saved at all, you and I were saved in the same way by calling on the Lord Jesus in faith. And how did we come to faith? We came to faith in the same way. Because in some manner, the Word of God was brought to us, revealing Christ to us. And like Abram, we heard the Word, and we believed the Word, and God counted us righteous. So, do not miss that. That is, what's the, what's the most important thing that can happen to a human being? That he gets saved. That's the biggest thing, is it not? But how does that happen? It happens by his word. No, I just put in the question, so after that, is it something else? But we'll, we'll return to that. Because I want to speak on an even more personal level about how the Word of God connects to me. And if you're a Christian, how the Word of God connected to you. And if you're not a Christian, how alone the Word of God can, would connect to you if it does. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll start out. I do hope you're turning uh, to these and looking at them with me. 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 4 and 5. 
Now, Paul says a, a rather breathtaking thing here. He's thanking God for the Thessalonians, and he tells us something he knows about them. He says, knowing, brothers beloved by God, your election. <laughs> what? Now, make no mistake, when Paul talks about election, he's talking about God's choice before the creation of the world, out of the mass of fallen humanity, God's choice of a subset. Huge and innumerable, but a subset who he chooses, gives to his son to save and redeems. And he says, I know you're elect. How can he know that? Is, is this some apostolic revelation, you know, like special glasses and some, you see in some movies, that because he's got apostle glasses, he sees little, little bright glowing stars, or no, he shouldn't say a star, bright glowing crosses on some people's foreheads. Oh, there's an elect person. Oh, there's an elect person. Oh, look, there's one over there. I'll preach to them and kind of let the other ones go. Is that what he's saying? Read on. Four. Or better, because, because that's the Greek word, knowing, brethren beloved by God, your election, because, here's how he knows they are elect, because our gospel did not come to you in word only. And then he uses a strong adversative, but, but by contrast, also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Many are called, but few are elect. You are chosen. The word of God goes out to all, but it doesn't go out to all in power, the Holy Spirit, and full assurance. It goes out to the elect in power, the Holy Spirit, and full assurance. And that's what marked them as elect. That didn't cause their election, of course. It revealed their election. That when they heard the word of God, hear me, friend, when they heard the word of God, they heard it like everyone else, except they heard it as for them. They heard it with power, with conviction, with the work of the Holy Spirit. See that more in chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted. The Greek word has the idea of you welcomed it, you embraced it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also is at work, a word that characteristically is supernatural work. It is operating in you who believe. So how do I know that I am elect? It's not by just having the Word of God come to me. The Word of God is going to every person in this room, in the Internet, people who hear it, people who hear the Word of God. But I know I'm elect when the, Holy, when the Word of God comes to me with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with assurance, with conviction. In other words, when the word out there becomes the word in here to me. When the facts I'm presented with become dynamic truths to me. That I, and I remember clearly that moment in my life. I'd heard the gospel before. Before February 11, 1973, I'd heard the gospel. Of course, I was an American. I'd heard the gospel somewhere. I hated it, but I heard it. Boy, oh boy, I'll tell you what. It's like somebody changed that message on February 11, 1973. Nobody changed the message. God changed me. And I, I was in a room of hundreds. And it was like that guy in the pulpit knew everything about me. And he was talking to me. Every word came home to me. And he preached Christ. And I knew I needed Christ. How did that happen? 
What a clever boy I was, right? No, 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 no. The rest of the hour, no. <laughs> it was the work of the Holy Spirit. It was the work of the power of God, taking the work, Word of God out there and making it to me. Now, now, it's critical to note, my friend, that it's the same Word. The Word out here that God makes the Word in here is the same Word. And it's the work of God to make it the Word in here. And so let me say something more. Are you a Christian? If you're not, then I urge you, come to Christ. Stop, stop wasting time. Flee to Christ. But if you're a Christian, well then, when you became a Christian, that was God Himself personally speaking to you. You see, what? I mean, this is words in the Bible. How is this words to me? We'll talk about that. But just notice it here. That's what happens when God saves a man or a woman. He makes His Word out here become His Word in here to us. And that is the one and only way that a person is saved. Not by hearing various Gospels about various Jesus, but hearing one word about the one Jesus and having that word brought home with power and with conviction. And the Gospel is expressed in words. That's how God saves a man. That's how God saves a woman. God brings redemption to individuals by His Word and by His Word alone. Secondly, it's how He brings direction. Number two, it's how He brings direction. Turn to 2 Timothy 3, and we'll look at verses 15 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. Paul's talking about what's going to keep Timothy stable in dangerous times when doctrines of dream, demons are flying around and men are departing from the truth. What's going to keep him sacred, uh, safe? It's what he's taught. And that, verse 15, from childhood, literally since you were an infant, from his mother's breast, you've known the sacred writings, that's the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise into salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So he was prepared to hear the gospel by what he learned from the Old Testament, not from John, not from Revelate, uh, Romans, but from the Old Testament, Genesis, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Psalms. That prepared him for saving faith. That's hierogrammata, holy letters, sacred writings, the Old Testament. But then he broadens in verse 16 when he says all Scripture. Scripture is a somewhat broader word. In chapter uh, 5, he's going to quote a little bit from the Gospel of Luke and call it Scripture. In 2 Peter 3, 3 is going to refer, uh, 3, Peter, who wrote 3, 2 Peter 3, Peter is going to refer to Paul's writings, and he will call Paul's writings Scripture. So the apostles and prophets were also writing Scripture. So now in a broader way to include all of Scripture, which we now know has 66 books, not 65 and not 67, all Scripture is Theopneustos, God-breathed. It comes from the very heart of God. Is that personal enough to you? Do you hear me? It comes from the very heart of God. That's what Theopneustos means. If you were to take these words, for whatever reason, and write them down, they would be Dan-breathed. My breath is bringing to you the words coming from my heart. Scripture brings us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, God's breath, from the heart of God, God's words. 
all scripture is God breathed and profitable. And then he gives four nouns. And I want you to mark these nouns for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And I ask you a question. I ask you a serious question and think seriously about it. What does that leave out? What do I need that that doesn't give me? Teaching tells me how and what to think. Reproof shows me where I'm wrong. Correction sets me right. And training in righteousness shows me how to live. Now I ask you again, what does that leave out, leaving me needing an extra personal word of something that's not in here? And the answer to that is provided in the next verse. Where Paul says, so that the man of God, and if the man of God, then any child of God, so that the man of God may be equipped. Well, there you go. But he has more to say. Having been thoroughly equipped for, what do we read? How many good works? Every good work. Leaving the need for, well, nothing. Well, nothing. Scripture alone has it. Scripture is how God works redemption in individuals. Scripture is how God provides direction for individuals. So, God's Word is His point of contact with His creation, generally, with people, generally, but it is also God's point of contact with the elect saint He uh, undertakes to save and with the elect saint He undertakes to direct in His life. It's God's Word that is that point of contact. Now, with that foundational truth in mind, let's talk personally about experiencing the truth. How does the Word of God, how do I experience the Word of God out there as the Word of God in here to me personally? Well, first, I've got to know the implications, and there's a progression here in the points I'm going to give you. I need to know the implications of the doctrine of Scripture. First, I need to know the living power of the Word. Turn to Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12. The writer says in Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both both joints and marrows, not not from, but it pierces into each of those, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now he fronts the word living in, in the Greek text. It emphasizes it. First thing he wants to know about the Word of God is it's living. And I can't tell you how many times charismatics and mystics have said that they want a a living relationship with God, not just through dead words. And by dead words, they mean the Holy Scripture. And I think that's pretty close to blasphemy if it isn't blasphemy. It certainly isn't what Scripture says about itself, is it? What does Scripture say about itself? Is it dead? It's living. The Word of God is living, and they say they don't want weak and lifeless words when they can have an experience. But I read that the Word of God is living and powerful, or active, or effective. Those are all translations you could use for the word energes. It is living and active. It's effective. And it's unimaginably sharp, piercing where nothing else can. And it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, what does that say? It is over me, over my emotions, over my thoughts. It judges them. It tells me what's right and wrong. I don't tell it. 
I don't pick and choose the parts that are congenial to me. It tells me the parts that are congenial to God. Do you follow me? And in this, the Word of God is, here's an important distinction, supernatural, not magical. So somebody could sit hearing this message and unmoved, no feelings, not a change, whatever, go away and talk about other things just as quickly as they can the moment the service is over. You say the Word didn't do anything. Well, that's true because it's not magical. It's not magical. But it is supernatural. To the believer who latches hold on it, we experience those things. It is those things for those of us who taste it, who devour it, who put ourselves into it. It is living and powerful. How though? How does, this, how does the innate power in the Word of God have a powerful impact on me? Secondly, let's talk about the personal quality of the Word. Uh, Psalm 119.24. Turn or listen, uh, your choice. But Psalm 119.24, the psalmist says, Thy, Your testimonies are my delight. Well, now there's a challenge right there to the professed Christian who never reads or has to be told to read or has to be reminded to read because he doesn't really want it. And when he does read, nothing happens. But Scripture says in this healthy saint that God's words are our are, are delight. That's a very emotional word. They give me joy. They satisfy me. They please me. And he goes on to say, they are my counselors. And the Hebrew... Uh, Phrase and she'atzathi is very uh, picturesque. It's literally, they are the men of my counsel, which is to say they're the men who give me advice. And it's sort of like a, a, a mental picture of God's testimonies, God's words lined up like a line of counselors, of wise, experienced, insightful men who are there to say, do this, don't do this. Here's what you need to know. This is foolish. This is wisdom. They're there to advise me. Now, I say, oh, well, that's what I would go to God for experiences of. Well, then that's a mistake because the way God says to get those experiences is from His Word. Your testimonies, which is Scripture, are my advisors. They stand by to give me the guidance I need. I conclude from that that all the guidance I need from God is in here. And that's what the doctrine of sufficiency means. Proverbs 6, verses 20 through 23. Do turn there, please. Proverbs 6, verses 20 through 23. Now, what does a mystic or a charismatic say they get apart from Scripture? Oh, God walks with me and He talks with me and He, he, he tells me things. He whispers little murmury, semi, hemi, demi revelations to me. And oh, that just means so much to me. Well, read this portion of Scripture which refers to Scripture. Psalm 6, verse, uh, Proverbs 6, verse 20. My son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not abandon the law of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. Oh, you see, that's where it is. It's not magic. I need to observe. I need not to forget. I need to tie it around my neck and bind it on my heart so that wherever I go, there it goes with me. And if all I do is own a Bible, then it won't own me. <laughs> I've got to get it into my heart. I've got to hide it in my heart. I've got to write it on my heart. And what happens when I do? Verse 22, when you walk about, they will lead you. The words of God. 
When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will speak to you. Now, I, I know you've heard this, but it's true. If you want to hear God speak to you, read the Bible. If you want to hear Him speak aloud, read the Bible aloud. But that's where God speaks. That's His point of contact. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. So there's a very personal quality to the Word. It gives us advice. It speaks to us. It leads and guides us. And as we walk in God's ways, it protects us. But wait, there's more. I want to talk, number three, about the individual appropriation of the Word. And here's where the the rubber meets the road even more, perhaps, with greater impact. The individual appropriation of the Word. How do I take a word that was written to people long dead who live far away and hear that as being for me in my life, in my moment, here and now? How does that happen? Well, I want to first talk about it in principle and go to a verse which will seem to you to have nothing to do with what we're talking about. Turn to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. And if I were you, I might be wondering at this point if the, if the pastor had lost the narrative, but I haven't. Galatians 2.20. Well, in these well-known words, Paul says, <clears throat> I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, if you've read Paul much, you recognize here that this is not the way he usually speaks. He doesn't usually speak in the first person singular. Normally, he's saying things like, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, or that he gave himself up for it, us, or he came to save sinners. It's in the plural number, and usually it's first person plural or it's second person plural. But here it's the first person singular. I, me. How can he do that? How can he speak so individually? Did he have some kind of special apostolic revelation that gave him the nerve? And you'll hear people like me sometimes say today, say today that it's, it's important not to over-individualize Christ's death because that's American individualism. The people will say, oh, he died for me as if I was the only person in the world. And the, and the way people take that is to say, so I don't need the church. I don't need people. I don't need to be involved with people. And of course, that is very, very unbiblical. And that's a false application of that truth. And yet, here it is in Scripture. Here's Paul saying exactly that. He loved me, and he gave himself for me. How did Paul figure that? Let me tell you. So, let's say you've got an attention span that's like this. That's fairly generous. I've got an attention span that's like this. And maybe our children have an attention span that's like... <laughs> but anyway, this is our attention span. What's God's attention span? It's infinite. Now, do you know what it means for a person to have an infinite mind and an infinite attention span? Think about this with me. It means that every single thing he does, he does as if it's the only thing he's doing. 
even though he's doing innumerable things at the same time. He is able to give all of his attention, all of it, to every single thing he does. And so that also means he's able to give all his heart and all his mind and all his attention to every single individual he relates to in all time. So at the same time Paul is relating to Adam, in his mind he's also relating to Abram. And at that same time, he's also relating to David. And at that same time, he's also relating to Peter. And at that same time, he's also relating to Paul. And in each case, he's relating to each of those men as if they were the only man he was relating to. I'm sorry, I should have put in women as well. I, nothing, I mean nothing by it, you know. Uh, you include a, a Rahab, include all the godly women. Uh, but... Each person God relates to, God relates to as if that were the only person. And so, and so, although it's true, when Christ died, He died for the elect. He died for His church. But at the same time, He died for each person in that number as if that was the only person He were dying for. He died thinking of my little crimes and my big crimes, my sins and my blasphemies, my arrogance and my wickedness. And he thought of you individually, Christian brother, Christian sister, and all of your blasphemies and all your crimes. And he did it out of love for you and out of love for me as if we were the only person he was dying for. We had all his attention. We had all his heart. And we had all his love. And so for every last person he died for. And so Paul can say with absolute legitimacy, the Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me. To the exclusion of everybody else? Oh no, of course not. Paul would never think that or mean that. But with all His great, vast, infinite heart and mind. So now, how do we take that truth and apply it to this? Why, that means then that how was Scripture written? It was written by inspiration of the Spirit of God. Peter says, holy men carried by the Spirit of God spoke from God. So as God spoke His Word, He spoke His Word true. Paul writes to the Colossians. Paul is thinking of the Colossians. God is thinking of the Colossians as He inspires those words. But He's also thinking of the French, of the English, the Americans. He's also thinking of us and this church. He's also thinking of you and of me and our individual needs. And so, although Paul is not thinking all those things, and David and Moses and Isaiah are not thinking all those things, are they their words ultimately? No scripture is of private interpretation, Peter says. These are words of God. God's thinking about each of us individually. And he moves his writers to write exactly the words that you will need and that I will need. Every one of them in Scripture. How can anyone do that? You'd have to be, well, you'd have to be God. And that's exactly what this is. It's the Word of God, and His Word is where He connects with people. So, let's look at it in practice then. You're ready to understand a new, we've looked at it before uh, months ago, but Hebrews 11.1 1, 
Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now I hope when you read that, no pun, I hope, give me assurance of this thing I hope for. I hope that when you read that, you don't think, ah, oh, yes, faith. So that, that's building up in ourselves a feeling of confidence so that, so that I'm confident about the things that comfort me and I get hope and assurance from that. Well, if we think that, we're not at all thinking about what the writer thought. And we're not at all thinking about what, the, what God thought in inspiring the writer. Remember, this is the same writer who wrote Hebrews 4.12. Living is the word of God and effective and sharper than any two-edged sword. When he's talking about faith, he's talking about the same way that Paul was. And what is faith? Faith comes by hearing, and what does hearing come by? The Word of Christ. So what is faith? What's it directed towards? My ideas about my goals and my visions? No, not ever. Faith is about God's Word, His Word to me, His Word to His world, His Word to His people. So remember the three aspects of faith we've talked about a number of times. Talk about my little green book. Uh, the, uh, the theologians use the word notitia, sensus, and fiducia, uh, which means uh, knowledge and agreement and trust. But I use the word uh, realizing, which is first of all, we've got to know what we're being called to believe. So I don't know anything about Jesus. You tell me about Jesus. Okay, now I understand that. And then realizing, which is to say, I come to see that what you're telling me is true. But that's not saving faith. A lot of people stop there and say that is. That is not saving faith. What's saving faith? It's resting. It is, I trust that truth. I call on Jesus to save me. I look to Him alone to save me. I rely on Him to save me. The truth out there, you see, becomes truth in here. I don't know what a boat is. I've lived in the desert all my life. You explain that that thing floating there is a boat. You explain to me how it works. So I think, yeah, if I get in, I guess I'll float too. But I'm not in the boat yet. I've got to get in the boat. And so it is with faith. So faith gets a word from God and grasps it, rests on it. And that is how the things I hope for, such as heaven, eternal life, being clear to the judgment of God, that's how I get assurance of those things, through faith in God's Word. And that's how I get the conviction of things not seen, the, the, holy, the, the trinity of God, the eternal kingdom of God, uh, the truth of God's Word and His righteousness. I get the conviction of those things by hanging on to His Word. And remember, and I'll never tire of, of stressing this, faith is not something that you do in a spasm when you sign a card or repeat a prayer or walk an aisle. So then you're saved, and now you go back to your life as you were. If so, then you weren't saved. Faith begins at conversion, but our life is a life of faith. Our lives change at conversion, or there's been no conversion. Kind of in the, in the Word, isn't it? <laughs> Can something be converted and not changed? Isn't that kind of in the Word? And so if someone's saved, if he's converted, his life changes into a walk of faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith. We're saved by faith, and then we walk by faith. So as I was saved by, by hearing and believing the Word of God, I walk by hearing and believing the Word of God. I walk the same way. So to, to sum up what we've seen so far, each Word of God, each Word of God was inspired, conceived, revealed by an infinite mind. 
And as God spoke each word, listen, each and every one of his children ever was on his mind and all of their needs. And each word then is in some manner a personal word of God to us. Whether it's a name in a genealogy or a dietary point in Leviticus or whether it's the promises of John and Revelation and the assurance of the Psalms, God had us in mind as he inspired each word, each of us in mind. So let's get to the application then in letter B. And I I leave you with two critical points in how to apply this personally. First, embrace God's way of being known on his terms. I cannot overstress the importance of that. Embrace God's way of being known on His terms. And this is a world filled with people who will say they know God on their terms. My God. My Jesus. The one that they like. Another biblical word for that would be idolatry. But worship of God is worship of God on His terms. And what are His terms? He reaches out to us how? By His word. That's his terms. That's his terms. And so if I am to connect with God on his terms, I will connect with him by faith in his word that he has spoken to all for all time. Now false teaching characteristically downplays what scripture says of itself. It it has to. Anytime you'll hear an otherwise sound and orthodox charismatic brother explain why he needs this extra revelation, he's got to put the Word of God down. That the Spirit gives life, but the letter kills, taking that totally out of context to put the Bible down. He's got to do that. And liberalism does that same thing. Charismaticism is kind of the meeting point of liberalism and mysticism in that way, in that it has to downplay the Word of God to show the importance of this extra personal subjective word that they're all about, that they desperately want. And so uh, it imbibes of that. But I want you to note very well, all of God's words are his words to you and to you, to you and to me. All of God's words are his words to us. When the infinite mind inspired those words, he had us in mind and not just our existence, but our needs. I mean, let me be very personal, if I may. Is that okay? So, as uh, I went through uh, just uh, a really rugged time uh, recovering from that surgery that I had. And thousands of years ago, when God moved David to write Psalm 31, and he moved David to write the words, but as for me, I trust in you, O Yahweh. I say, you are my God my times are in your hand. When he moved David to write of that, he was thinking about my recovery from that surgery and how much I would need those words to give me strength and hope and carry me through. David wasn't thinking about that, but God was thinking about that. As God thinks about your issues in your your marriage, your family, your work, your life, and he has said something to you about that. He said it in here. He had you in mind when he inspired these words. You, me, personally. He had us in mind when he inspired Isaiah to write, Fear not, for I am with you. 
Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. Yes, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He was thinking about you, Christian brother, Christian sister, as he wrote those words, as he wrote the words of Psalm 23. He had you in mind, your dark valley, your enemies. That's what it is to have the infinite personal God who has spoken as our God and his sufficient living word for our guide. God's word contains every word you and I need from God. So look, embrace God's way of being known on his terms and look to the word with, here's an important word, look to the word with finality, with finality. It is his last word before he sends his son back. It's his last word to us. He's not still in negotiations, never really was. His terms are all in his word. John Owen, living in the 1600s, wrote very well. He's not always easy to understand. I've tried to make it a little simpler, but it's still a very good statement. John Owen, he said, Since the finishing of the canon of the Scripture, the church does not stand in need of such new extraordinary revelations. To suppose them or a necessity of them not only overthrows the perfection of Scripture, but also leaveth us uncertain whether we know all that is to be believed unto salvation or our whole duty. In other words, if this is not complete and perfect, then I don't know if I know everything I need to know to be saved or to live. Because God's still got more to say. The, the ultimate person with the hand on the doorknob. You know, the ultimate Columbo. All right, we're all done. Oh, wait, one more thing. And in that picture, that's God. And here's his final word. Oh, except... Oh, and this. Oh, and one more thing. Well, if he's still doing that, then I don't know if I know everything I need to know, right? And nobody does. But that's not where we are. Owen continues that uh, it would be our duty to live all our days in expectation of new revelations without peace, assurance, or consolation. And writing about Owen, J.I. Packer said this about Owen's criticism of the, the Quakers who believed everybody got a personal word from God apart from Scripture. And uh, Packer writes, well, if their private revelations agree with Scripture, they're needless. And if they disagree, they're false. And that's what you often hear. Oh, yes, sir, I get these personal words, but they have to agree with Scripture. And Packer says, well, if they agree with Scripture, then I don't need them (laughs) because Scripture already has them. And if they don't agree with Scripture, then I don't want them because they're false. That's pretty true. And I'll just close finally with, again, John Frame. He says very well, he's talked about the the power of God's Word and that the power of His words is the power to create obligation in us. And that's true of every word. When you look at it right, every word of Scripture is a command of God. It's either a command to believe what He's saying about this history or to think. If it says rejoice, then it's a command to me to feel a certain way. If it says hope, if it says humble yourself, if it says do this, if it says stop this, they all come with the authority of God. And the degree of the power in words varies in accord with the degree of the the person speaking. If I tell my child in my home to do something, he should do it. If I tell your child in your home to do something, take it or leave it. (laughs) I don't have authority in that setting. But God has authority in every setting. And so all God's words always have all God's authority.
And so Frame writes, and he's making the point that God's words are personal speech. And so he says, God's speech to man is real speech. It is very much like one person speaking to another. God speaks so that we can understand him and respond appropriately. So just like he says, let there be light and there's light, so what he says to you and me, he means exactly as he says it. Imagine God speaking to you right now, as realistically as you can imagine, perhaps standing at the foot of your bed at night. He speaks to you like your best friend, your spouse, your parents. Scripture is plain that the very nature of the Christian life is having God's word and doing it. Jesus said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. John 14, 21. Everything we know about God, we know because he's told us through his personal speech. All our duties to God are from his commands. All the promises of salvation through faith in Christ are God's promises from his own mouth. Amen. So the Bible is God's final and sufficient word to all. The Bible is God's personal word to us. It is our great joy and our privilege and our duty to know him personally through his sufficient, satisfying, personal word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this glorious truth. And as I prayed at the start and earlier, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God will bring it home personally, that those who have not yet believed in Christ as salvation will hear his call today and repent and believe that those who have heard God's word with indifference before will be filled with fire and ardor and desire to know you and to hear you speak and that all of us will be satisfied and delight and learn to delight in your words as your words to us. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to us. In Jesus' name, amen.